0: Continue our reading in Luke chapter 15 and the very well known parable in verse 11. Luke 15 and at verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, He said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In verse 11, the parable opens with these words A certain man had two sons. A certain man had two sons. Now, uh, I had intended some while ago that I would have uh, resumed our study of First Corinthians by now, and I hope God willing uh, to resume it uh, very shortly. But this uh, parable has been impressed on my mind, I believe, uh, by the Lord, because of a few readings that I had recently, and also some conversations with some people. And I want, with God's help, for a few weeks... Uh, to consider it together. Now I I have to begin in a way by saying that uh, I don't particularly find this uh, an easy parable to preach from for a few reasons. First of all because the story is as well told as it is and uh, there is no one who told a story quite like the Lord Jesus Christ and it stands written so beautifully in the scriptures that I think any preacher would be conscious that to touch it is somehow to mar it. And sometimes when you hear that the sermon is going to be about the prodigal son, I mean, there may be some of you who say, oh, well, not another sermon on the prodigal son. I must have heard about 20 of them. Well, you may indeed be weary of them. You may indeed be weary of these. But I'll reckon that reading the parable in the scripture, you are not weary of it. I don't know how often I have read the parable of the prodigal son in the scripture myself, but I am never weary of reading it. There is something in the story, something new to be found, something powerful in it that speaks to us in the very depths of our being. Uh, Of course, it is itself an illustration. It's an illustration of a principle the principle is that God is looking for sinners and rejoices when he finds them. But the illustration is itself so full and so rich that it invites us to go into it. It still needs to be explained and it still needs to be expounded. The other reason, of course, that it's difficult is is connected with that. It's not just well told, but it is well known. Uh, If we have an average education, and sadly many people are below that now, we will have heard of this, even as a product of English literature, although it comes from a Hebrew, it comes from the Messiah himself. If we have a church background, we'll be familiar with it. And just as I hinted at a wee while ago, it's possible that familiarity does breed contempt. And sometimes when you hear a text that's often preached you, you, you shut it out at the beginning. Well, I'm I'm not really going to listen to that. I know everything that's to be said or to be heard about the prodigal son. For that, we need to remember two things. First of all, that the Word of God is an inexhaustible treasure. And many of you have been following the gospel for many years, and you're still amazed at how you discover new things in the Word of God, New things even in the passages of the word of God that are most familiar to you. And it still has treasures to yield. And uh, Christ said to the disciples that as teachers of the word of God, it was their duty to bring out of the treasury old things and new things. And the staggering thing is that you will constantly find new things, even in the passages that you are most familiar with. It It reminds me of something that I've possibly told you before. It was a, a poor student who was ready to uh, leave college, and he was giving his final uh, sermon before the class and before the professors. And when he came to the end of his sermon, he unfortunately said that that was it. I feel he said that I've now pretty much exhausted the text. And uh, of course, the the lecturer who was summing up what the sermon was like, uh, gave him a fair summary of what he had done, and at the end he said, never say you've exhausted the text, because he says there's a big difference between you exhausting the text and the text exhausting you, and what happened is that the text exhausted you, and that's true. uh, However much we enter into it, There's always something to be found. Remember that, of course, in your daily reading of Scripture, you will come in daily reading of Scripture to passages of God's Word that you're familiar with. And I know what that's like. And there is a tendency to think, well, I know what's coming here. Well, close your eyes and pray and ask the Lord to give you a relish for what's old and give you the incentive to to discover what might be new. And you just watch how God brings for you out of the treasury things old and things new. And so if I come to this text fresh as a preacher, and if you come to it fresh as a hearer, I've no doubt there will be something for yourself too. Um, The other reason that we should uh, quicken our spirits in coming to it. It's because with with anything like this, uh, reading God's Word or preaching God's Word, timing is often everything. Timing is often everything. Uh, There may have been occasions before when you heard expositions even of this passage, but you weren't really ready to listen. For some reason, you just weren't. Your heart was like the stony ground and the seed fell on it. The birds of the air took it away and that was the end of that. It had no lasting effect upon you because you simply weren't ready to hear it. But maybe, by the grace of God, you are ready to hear it this evening. It may be that God has so worked in your life that there is uh, something about you that is ready to hear the parable in a new and fresh way as a word that comes from God. Not a preacher, but comes from God himself. And in that way, perhaps now is the appointed time for you, and uh, that now is the moment that the Lord will apply it, maybe even to the saving of your soul. Now, for the parable itself, uh, we always look for keys to open parables for us. And sometimes the key is a little awkward to find. At other times, it just hangs right above the door. And here, It hangs right above the door. And if you take down that key and put it into the lock, the door swings open for you and you almost immediately see in full what the Lord wants you to see. And you find the key in the opening verse of the chapter. We're told in verse 1, That all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable, and indeed the next two, to them. That's our key. The tax collectors and the sinners. The Lord is eating with them, as well as teaching them and bringing the message of God to them. Tax collectors are not the people who raised local taxes or taxes for the temple, a religious tax. These tax collectors were employees of Rome, and they raised money for the Roman government. And of course, the proud Jewish people resented that, and they resented that their own people should be involved in raising money from their own countrymen in order to pass it on to the Roman authorities. People like Zacchaeus, people like that, they were really looked down upon. I mean, if you imagine for a moment that a foreign power gained the ascendancy over our own country, a power that we resented very much, and suppose some of our own people were involved in raising the taxes for them, you might get a a little bit of an understanding of how they felt. So the bottom line is that a tax collector was persona non grata in Judah. People didn't really want to know them, although, of course, they had all the protection of Rome. They had very big houses. They had fantastic salaries, uh, but nobody wanted to know them, and that included the Pharisees. They wanted nothing to do with them. Sinners is just a kind of code name for people who had pretty much opted out of respectable life. It included people like prostitutes, people who were drunkards, or uh, just people that you would consider dropouts, dropping out of society for, for one reason or another. In other words, tax collectors and sinners symbolize people who have opted out of the church and Opted out pretty much of everything to do with the church and retain no real connection with it. So they're not just lost. The, the people in in Judea would have thought of them as hopelessly lost, to the point where they were beyond the pale. We use that expression beyond the pale. Uh, a pale has nothing to do with a bucket. A pail is a, a stake that you put in the ground. For example, if someone is impaled, it means that you've put a stake through them. Well, a- around Dublin, hundreds of years ago, the English settlers put pails uh, in the ground at a certain point, And if anyone was put outside of that, they were left to the, to the wilds of Ireland. That's how they thought. They were out of the protection of the English king. They were out of civilization. The expression was brought into the church too, and in connection with Ireland as well, it came in there to be beyond the pale. And sometimes it's still used ecclesiastically of people who are just well away from the church, people that the church can't reach, or even, as the Pharisees thought, people that the church shouldn't even bother with, because God was evidently not bothering with them. Now, you may think that sounds very harsh and cruel, and of course it is, but you'll have to remember that that there is a perspective from which you can understand it. I mean, the the Word of God speaks to ourselves very solemnly about people who choose uh, to reject God, and they go further, they begin to be oppressors of Christian people. And that may so grow that they become blasphemers against the Holy Spirit. And Christ says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness in this life or in the life to come. People who have so hardened against the gospel, having actually once had time for it, but having so hardened against it that they are just blazing in opposition to it. Some of them may be sinning against the Holy Spirit and God knows them to be beyond appeal. We would still speak to them. We would still reason with them. We would still preach to them. But it may be the case that they are beyond appeal. And if if we understand that in Scripture, and I think Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 teaches it, as well as the Gospels, then we can begin perhaps to understand how the Pharisees thought that these people might be beyond the pale. But there is a difference, and it's an important difference, because these tax collectors and these sinners and these people who had dropped out weren't necessarily really opposed to God. They had made choices, yes, that that put them outside, but it didn't mean that their opposition to God wasn't something that could be reclaimed. It didn't mean that they shouldn't be interested in trying to get these people back. But the Pharisees didn't seem to care. And at bottom, that was the problem. It's not that the Pharisees really definitely thought them beyond the pale, even if they did, but they weren't interested in them, period. It looks as though God's not interested in them, so why should we not be interested in them? And uh, that's why when the Lord had time for them, when the Lord spoke with them, when the Lord sat down with them and ate with them, not a fellowship meal, but was still prepared to eat with them and to speak with them and to reason with them, they actually, well, they were angry. And as far as they were concerned, they were angry for God's sake. How, how dare a man who who is supposed to be a man of God, actually talk to people like that? How how can he sit down with them at a table and eat and speak with them? His holiness should prevent him from doing that. That was their understanding. And uh, in fact, this kind of thinking got so much of a hold of them That the miracles which Christ performed, as far as they were concerned, were performed by the power of Satan. Beelzebub, that was the source of his miraculous power. It is by the prince of the power of the air that he performs whatever miracles he appears to perform. He doesn't perform them because he is a Messiah or because he is the Son of God, but because he has a devil and he is off the devil, and the power that he exerts is a devilish power. That's where their viewpoints took them. And, of course, they imputed guilt to Christ in terms of the company he chose. You know the kind of way of thinking, well, it's no surprise at the end of the day that he likes their company, because that's who he is. He's more comfortable with these people than he is with us, because that's who he is. Now, the point of these parables is to show how far wrong all that is. He gives these three parables to tell us essentially what he's doing. And what he's doing is he's seeking and saving that which is lost. He's going after a lost sheep. He's going after a lost coin, and he's going after a lost son. He's also telling us these parables because he wants to show us that when he finds what's lost, there is rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing in heaven. When the sheep is brought home, everyone gathers and rejoices because he finds the sheep that was lost. When the woman finds the coin, again, we're told that she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the peace which is lost. Similarly, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God, in other words, in God Himself. There is presence, joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And of course, when the lost Son is found, there is music, there is dancing and joy and the killing of the fatted calf, because your brother was dead, he is alive, he was lost, and he is now found. So even if you as Pharisees are complaining, my father isn't complaining, if the religious people on earth are somehow unhappy, then the saints in glory are rejoicing, and the angels in glory are rejoicing, And above all, my Father in heaven is rejoicing that I am receiving sinners and eating and drinking with them. And of course, you should be rejoicing too. Now, that's your key to the parable. It's your key to understanding the lost sheep. It's your key to understanding the 99 who are still in the wilderness. It's your key to understanding the prodigal son. It's your key to understanding the elder brother who won't go in and join the festivities. It's all there. But before we begin, um, I just want to to notice something. And that's that there are three parables. Now, there is a, a reason for that. It's not an unnecessary duplication or triplication you could call them in a way a trinity of parables because the three of them together are actually revealing the trinity in operation. When I say to you that God is seeking out sinners like you and like me, I mean that God is doing that as Father, Son, and Spirit. The seeking shepherd in the first parable who goes after the lost sheep is our Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. In the second parable, the sweeping woman who sweeps the floor until she finds the lost coin is the Holy Spirit himself, who is represented as a woman because he works through the church and through her ordinances and through the preaching of the gospel. As John said in the Revelation, the Spirit... And the bride say, come. When the gospel goes out, the Holy Spirit is saying, come. But so does the bride. The church, the ordinances, everything about this house says, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the seeking shepherd is the son. The sweeping woman is the Holy Spirit. And the waiting father is God the Father himself Um, you'll notice how that ties in uh, with new testament teaching elsewhere Uh, paul says to the galatians in chapter four he says that in the fullness of time god sent forth his son and then two verses later it says god sent forth his spirit But he doesn't come forth himself. He waits to receive at home. So it is the love of the father preeminently that comes out in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, It's a Trinitarian love. We delight in dividing them. We delight in merging them together, rightly so. But the love of the son perhaps is at the fore in the first parable, the love of the spirit in the second, but the love of the father in the third it's it's worth dwelling on that a little bit because sometimes people struggle with that very thing i don't know if you have yourself but people may sometimes say well i i see the love of the lord jesus christ in the bible i i see that and i see it very very plainly but i struggle to see the love of god the father he seems well even if you call him father he seems distant And he seems remote to me. And in fact, I I can only believe he loves because uh, I'm constrained to believe it because Christ says so. And of course, if, if you think like that, or if you have difficulty thinking of the father as a loving heavenly father who receives sinners to eat and drink with them in the heavenly kingdom, well, there are some texts that help you. We're told in Romans 8 that God did not spare his own son. Is there not love in that? In fact, your difficulty is the relationship there between the father and the son, that God did not spare him. But it should highlight his love for you. God did not spare his son. Again, in the famous text that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you really want to see the love of God the Father, why don't you just read this parable again and read it at home and read it on your own. It'll always live when you read it. And you cannot look at the Father rushing out to welcome his Son and to give him the best welcome possible. You can't possibly read that and think that the Father has no love towards sinners in his heart. Absolutely not. Never think of the son as the one who loves you when the father doesn't, or that the son somehow purchases the father's love. He doesn't. He doesn't. So it's a trinity of parables. Another reason that we have a trinity of parables, I think it's a subordinate reason, but I still think it's a valid one, It's because there's a different focus in the three. In this sense, in the first two parables, the emphasis falls on the work of God in getting a hold of a sinner. Now, we know that, we we all know it very well, that for any sinner to come home, it requires the work of God. No sheep is going to find its way back to the wilderness No coin is just going to magically appear, and no son will ever come home. But in the first two parables, the emphasis falls on that divine side. The shepherd goes out, finds, and brings it back. That's the work of Christ on the cross. Redemption purchased. The second parable, again, is God at work in the person of the Holy Spirit, sweeping around until he finds the coin redemption applied, really the work of the Spirit. In the last parable, you'll notice that the Father is at home. Nobody, in a sense, is finding the Son. The Son is thinking and reasoning and coming home. The Son is the one who says to himself, when he comes to himself, he says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants, never mind sons like me. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I am perishing with with hunger. I will arise, and I'll go to my father. And he arose, and he came to his father. It's him. It's him. How he thinks, how he reasons, how he feels, and what he does. Because at the end of the day, That's what's involved from your perspective in coming home. You can sit and wait all day and all night. You can sit and wait months and years thinking that somehow this is exclusively the work of God. When God is telling you here, it is your work too. Yes, I can go back behind this man, as it were. And I could say that God has supervised him in the far country. That God has made him weary with this situation. I could go behind him and say that. I can go behind it all and say that it's God that's worked in his heart. So that he comes to himself. And thinks and reasons and resolves to get up and gets up. Yes, it's God is behind all that. But does he know that? Is he sure of that? Does he feel it? That's not the way it works. How it works for you is that you think and you feel, and you reason, you resolve, and you do the thing. It is a divine work, yes, but it is a human work. And on your side, it is very much a human work. So this parable, more than the other two, reminds you that you need to be saved. You need to believe the gospel. You need to repent. You need to press into the kingdom of God, and you must do it without delay now then uh, let's begin looking at the son now you'll remember i'm doing this with you over uh, a few weeks so i'm not going through the whole parable tonight but we will look at four things in connection with him we'll look first of all at his standing and that's where our text takes us straight away we're told that a certain man had two sons um that's not incidental to the story. It's not just a detail that's necessary for the picture to be painted. But, but having no real significance for the picture, it does. So we'll look at his standing. Second, we'll look at his fall, when he sinks so low as a Jew that he would happily eat what pigs eat. Then we'll look at his rising, when he actually gets up to go home, And last of all, we'll look at his reception and his restoration. Now, I just want to begin tonight by looking at his standing. A certain man had two sons. He is his father's son, just as the elder brother is the father's son. Two sons of the same father. Now, (laughs) believe it or not, or Maybe it's not a case of believe it or not. Maybe you're in the category yourself, but a lot of people stumble at this right away. And I can understand why. It can cause some confusion. These two people are actually the same. They stand in the same relationship with their father. Therefore, some people take a a rather unusual approach to to the parable. They say, well, if the prodigal son really is a son like the elder brother, they must both be Christians. They must both be Christians. And the prodigal son must be painting a picture of a Christian who goes really far astray in his Christian life and comes back to experience the grace of God. Now, sadly, we all know that such a thing can happen. In fact, all of us who who are Christians will acknowledge that there have been various times in our lives when maybe to some degree or other we have backslidden, although people use the term, I think, uh, too lightly and too carelessly. But these two people are, are not the same, and you shouldn't think of the prodigal son as a Christian, neither, in fact, should you think of the elder brother as a Christian, That's not the point. The hundred sheep in the wilderness are not to be thought of as Christians either. Don't start at the wrong point. You see, the the sheep that got lost, the coin that got lost, and the son that got lost, all started in a good place. That's all you need to remember for now. They started in a good place. The Lost Sheep started out in the wilderness with the 99. Is that a good place? Yes, that is a good place. The, the choice of the word wilderness to translate pasture land is a very unfortunate choice, really. Because, I, I, well, I don't know what a wilderness conveys to you, but to me it more or less conveys something that's akin to a desert. Some kind of barren, windswept area. A wilderness of a place. But that's not actually uh, what the Greek word behind wilderness means. It is a pasture land. There's no plowing in it. There's no sowing in it. There are no crops, but it's full of grass. And it's rich and luxurious for sheep to graze in. It's the best place possible for the sheep to be in. That's important to understand. You'll remember when the Lord Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children in the wilderness. We're told that they sat down in the midst of much grass. Much grass. Because that's what wilderness is. Pasture land. Pasture land for sheep. So, So when the lost sheep goes away, he's leaving a good place. And the Lord Jesus comes and brings him back home to the the fold. And he says there's far more rejoicing over that sheep that comes home to the fold than over the 99 sheep that are still in the pasture land. They're in a good place, but they're not home yet. That's That's a picture of the Pharisees, who are in a good place in terms of God's provision for them god has plenty pasture land for them to them belongs the adoption the temple the priesthood the the books of the law the the synagogue the sanctuaries it it, they're in the best place but the other sheep is brought home so there's more rejoicing in heaven over them than the 99 who jesus calls just persons who need no repentance Have you ever wondered about that? Why should God rejoice more over one sinner than over 99 people who have been already converted? Well, because the 99 are not already converted. When Jesus calls them just persons who need no conversion, he's making a comment. Just like he said to the Pharisees, I did not come to call the righteous. You'll never come because that's how you see yourself. Because you you think you're righteous and you have no need of a physician. You'll never come to me as a physician. I mean, why go to the doctor if you don't feel sick? You'll never come. And these just persons who need no repentance are people who need no repentance in their own eyes. And there's lots of them. You find them in the church, you find them out of the church. No. No. Take someone who's a million miles from the kingdom of heaven. See them wonderfully and gloriously converted. There is far more joy in heaven over them than over 99 upright people who think they're entitled to the kingdom of heaven on their own merits. The coin, too, is in a good place. Because it belongs to part of a woman's wedding headdress. A common thing for women just married to be given a headdress of ten beautiful silver coins. She has lost it. And of course, of course, losing a coin like that um, is more than the value of the coin itself. J- just because of what it is and what it's associated with. Think, for example, of a bride who somehow loses her wedding dress. So so it was part of that, and and when the coin is found, it's restored, and that's the joy. I mean, this woman isn't celebrating because she's found a little bit of money. She's celebrating because she's found something that other people understand was so important to her. That's, That's a reflection of a sinner in God's image, a sinner that fell from being in the image and likeness of God because that's what we belong to by virtue of being humans, originally created in the image of God. That's what we fell from. Just as the first parable is representing leaving our privileges and our opportunities and our blessings, so this is representing falling away from the image of God and being marvelously restored to it. In the same way, the two sons are special kinds of sons. Now, this needs a a bit of explanation. I'm I'm sure that a a good number of you will be familiar with the fact that there are two sonships um, in the Bible. You can be a son of God in two ways. Uh, The first is a son by creation. Creation. Paul said, and uh, all his offspring. Uh, he said it to uh, to the Romans, wasn't it? To the Romans, he quoted a Greek poet, and uh, I can't remember the name of the Greek poet. But the Greek poet wrote uh, he wrote something about their own gods, and he said they said we are all his offspring, and, and Paul quoted that. He said, as one of your own poets have said, we are all his offspring. We are God's offspring. As Malachi says, Have we not all one Father? What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to say, Has not one God created us? So he means that God is our Father by creation. We are his offspring. He begat us. Adam is, in that sense, called the Son of God. Now, it's, it's quite a thought to think that, in that respect, you, Whoever you are and wherever you stand in your own mind in relation to God, that's who you are. Uh, He is your father by creation. He is the father of spirits. That's what he's called in Hebrews 12. Shall we not much more be in subject to the father of spirits and live? The writer to the Hebrews there is saying that um, if we are subject to our father's by nature, and we listen to their discipline and take their discipline on board. He says, how much more should we be in subjection to the Father of spirits, the one who has given us our spirit? A reminder, too, there that by creation you have received the image of God. Um, Now, that image is defaced, no doubt about that, in fact, it's so defaced that if someone was to look at you today and to look at your soul, maybe they would struggle to find marks of God's creation upon you. But it's there in every one of you. And not just every one of you here tonight, but everyone out there too. Everywhere, as the the, the very philosophical Puritan John Howe wrote a book on the living temple where he, he was... Um, it was a psychological work, really, a study of the human soul. And he says that everywhere you travel in the heart of man, you see a ruined temple. Which says that God once dwelt here. And that's so obvious in you. You, you are so distant from the animal kingdom. So distant. I mentioned, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, that you have so much in common with the animal kingdom. Because God brought us all from the earth. We share the same chemicals. We share a substantial amount of DNA. We share a substantial amount of genes. But you're a million miles away from them. Your reasoning power, your thought, doesn't just exceed theirs or excel over theirs, but it's in another sphere altogether. You can analyze. You can synthesize. You can reason about heaven and earth. You have a comprehension of immortality and of eternity. You can think of concepts such as right and wrong and good and evil and beauty and ugliness. You can think of heaven and think of hell. And you have a conscience. And in all these things, the mark of God's creation is upon you. You are his offspring, all of you, sons by creation. That's an important sonship in the Bible. But it doesn't save you. To be a son by creation doesn't save. There's a second sonship. Some of you, maybe most of you here, know this sonship. This is a wonderful sonship. This is sonship by adoption. That's what happens when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God adopts you into his family so that you actually belong to his family, not, a cre- not by creation, but by recreation, by regeneration. You are generated a second time, not generated from the flesh, but generated in the spirit. Newborn, new birth, and you become sons and daughters of God. And uh, that's a wonderful thing for every Christian here to comprehend, to think about it often. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God because I have been united to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am one with him and he is now my elder brother and I am in God's family, a royal family. Wonderful. And that puts a division between you here tonight. The the natural generation or the sonship by creation binds us all together. The sonship by adoption just puts a a real division between us. Some of you, by faith, have been adopted into God's family. Some of you have not. Not yet. I hope you will be. But what people often overlook is that there is actually a third sonship in the Scripture. Now, I hope this doesn't complicate things. In fact, far from complicating things, I I hope that once we look at it a little bit, it might actually help you to understand not just this parable, but the whole Bible. That may may seem a, a staggering thing to say, but I honestly think so, that if you understand this third sonship, you'll understand the Bible a lot better. You'll understand church a lot better. You'll understand baptism a lot better. You'll understand communion a lot better. This kind of, this third sonship is what we could call a covenantal sonship. In other words, you become a special kind of son by becoming a member of God's covenant people. And you do that by being baptized into them now i think in a way the best way to to understand that is by thinking about israel for a second god called israel the people the nation he called them his own son Um, as a collective as a nation as a collect collective group he says israel is my son And when Hosea refers to the exodus, which happened years before his time, God speaks through Hosea and says, I called my son out of Egypt. Israel, my son, I called him out of Egypt. It's even more stark when God sends Moses into Pharaoh. Um, Moses, you'll remember, was a man who had been raised In Pharaoh's court, although it wouldn't be the same Pharaoh. But when he went in before Pharaoh, this was the message that God gave him. Listen to it. Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you do not let my firstborn go, I will take your firstborn which, of course, happened in the tenth and final plague. But listen to those words. Israel is my son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. Now, when you think today of Israel as a people or as a nation, I would, in many respects, describe them as a prodigal son. A prodigal son. They have chosen and took a decisive choice, especially after the resurrection of Jesus and after the preaching of the resurrected Christ. They took a conscious choice to disobey and to reject the God of their fathers. Just like this son, they packed up everything they had and they've gone to a far country. In fact, literally so. Where do you find this ancient people of God? In far countries. Yes, interestingly, God is bringing them back home. And that is interesting. It's more than interesting. It's profoundly spiritual. But they went to a far country. But when they went to a far country, who became the firstborn? The church did. That doesn't mean that Israel are forever out of the church, far from it. In fact, they'll come back into it. But for now, the church is God's son, the new Israel. Now, how do you become a part of that? Well, you become a part of it, first of all, by being born into it. Just as you were born into the firstborn son of Israel, so you are born into the new Israel of God. And you immediately become an heir of what God has to give you, your father. He's got an inheritance to give you as a covenantal son. Don't think there's no difference between you as a covenantal baptized child and a child who was never covenanted and never baptized. There's a world of a difference between you. Sad to say your destiny may be the same, lost and everlastingly lost, but there's a world of a difference between you. To one of you belongs by birthright everything that God has to give you. It is signified in your baptism. When many of you have been baptized and when that water was sprinkled upon your heads by virtue of your parents' faith and by virtue of their position as belonging to the sons of God, you too were brought into membership of that covenant community. Son, God is saying, all that I have is yours. Why, why do you still stand outside when you've been inside? Son, daughter, covenantal son, covenantal daughter, all that I have is yours, yours. Now, like I say, that covenantal sonship is not a saving sonship. It's not the same as being adopted in, but as people say today, it is what it is, and it's a lot very important and it's precious i don't know if you've ever noticed and i'm sure i've probably brought this out but in the next chapter on here in chapter 16 you you'll come to the very well known parable of the rich man and lazarus the rich man famously is the man who had everything and went to hell lazarus is the man who had nothing and went to heaven if if you go down to verse 23 in that chapter this is luke 16 and verse 23 just just Look it up. You'll notice what the rich man says. Well, in verse 23, he lifts up his eyes in torments, in Hades or hell, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So Lazarus is at a feast in heaven. Suddenly the rich man's the hungry one. But you'll notice that he cries out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Why does he say Father Abraham? Why does Christ represent him as saying Father Abraham? Well, because he's cleaving, you see, to this sonship. I belong to Abraham's family. I belong to Abraham's household. I belong to the church. I was born into the church. I was circumcised into the church. I ate with God's people and I drank with God's people. What does God say to him in verse 25? This is even more mysterious. Well, sorry, Abraham. What does Abraham say to him? Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now... He is comforted and you are tormented. The word that you can pass over there is the word son. But the word son relates to the rich man's cry in verse 24. Father, father, Abraham, can you not listen to me as as my father? And Abraham says, son. In other words, yes, you were. Yes, you were. I took you covenantally into my household. I took you into my church and I gave you every blessing and every opportunity possible, but, but you spurned that. You, you spurned my spiritual gifts, spurned them all. And when a child of mine appeared hopelessly hungry on your doorstep, you couldn't care less. So when you import that, and it's right to import it into Luke chapter 15. What you've got here is two privileged sons, both in the church of God, with God as their father, not just by creation, but covenantally, right? All that God has is theirs, a privileged place to be. But what happens to this man? Well, he decides to rebel I was going to say a little about that. I'm just going to leave it. My time's gone. Next time, God willing, next Sabbath evening, we'll look at this man's fall from his standing. Let us pray. Our gracious and uh, merciful God, we pray to understand at the outset of this very glorious parable that we ourselves are uh, children of privilege and uh, many of us have even begun life in the bosom of your own church and trained from childhood to look upon you and to call you our father which art in heaven do we realize that such a fatherhood and sonship will not see us safely home we could still address you as father And you would still address us as sons, but find ourselves in a lost eternity like the rich man. And uh, so we pray to make sure that our own standing tonight is a right standing with God. Not enough to stand in privilege, but to stand in grace and to know adoption, faith in Jesus Christ and the spirit that says Abba. Father, through spiritual regeneration, new life, and a new creature, bless our thoughts and your word. May it reach home to our needy hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Let's um, close by uh, reading in Psalm 65 from your psalm book page 297 psalm 65 on page 297 now reading these words it may seem more appropriate for a beginning worship but uh, as we go on we'll see their relevance for us praise waits for thee in zion lord to thee vows paid shall be, O thou that hearer art of prayer, all flesh shall come to thee. Iniquities, I must confess, prevail against me do, but as for our transgressions, them purge away shalt thou. Blessed is the man whom thou dost choose, and makest approach to thee, that he within thy courts, O Lord, may still a dweller be. This is someone who delights to be in God's house. And notice here how satisfied he is with God's house. We surely shall be satisfied with thy abundant grace and with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy place. We'll hear these verses sung to God's praise. stand to receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord and Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.